So, Father, thank you that um, in amongst all of the um, grieving we've done recently, all of the what has seemed like an avalanche, really, Lord, of um, people going to see you face to face, we can know that they have done that, that they have gone into joy and into peace and into glory. And what an amazing thing that is for us, Lord, a great assurance that, um, that when we consider our own leaving, we can know where we're going. So I, I, I praise you for it, Lord, and thank you. And, and we want to pray for all the families of um, these people that we've known and shared fellowship with, uh, that you would be real to them too. I'm thinking about Rob and his three sons and, um, and Kim's family um, yeah, and Brenda and her daughters and her husband, Lord, that you would just remind them that uh, you are real, that, that glory awaits, and, and especially for Kim's family who don't know you, Lord, that you would really be speaking loudly to them, that they might... Um, that they might start to believe and put their trust in you. I thank you, Father, that, um, that you will do that because you want them far more than we want them to go to be with you. We, we know that you love us far more than we can ever comprehend. And so, Lord, I praise you for that and thank you and ask that you be God to all of those families in a very real and tangible way as they uh, seek to understand how their lives will go on without those that they love. So we praise you, Lord. I thank you for this evening. I thank you for what we're going to see in these um, chapters in Luke. And I ask, Father, that you would um, wake us up, shake us up, Lord, so that we really do understand what it is you're telling us and how we move what you're telling us into our own lives in a real practical way. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, okay, what have you noticed so far in Luke's presentation about Jesus? Big things, not, de- not details. I mean, if you had to talk about Luke and how he's presented Jesus, what would you say? Yeah, he's very detailed in his presentation. Very practical, very detailed. Mm. A lot of insight, yes. Um, Centred in historical um, moment in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's sh- he makes sure to put it into history. Mm? Very simple, yeah. Yeah, very simple. Yes, they usually are. At least they can articulate simply so that those the rest of us can understand, yeah. Yeah. Natural and supernatural mixed together. Yes, yeah. What do you think he wants us most to know about Jesus? Just from what we've seen so far, I mean, we're only five chapters in. What would you say that he? What's your overriding impression of Jesus as he's presented him? Yes, he's the Son of God. Second Adam. So he's a man. He definitely was a man. He was a a human being. Yeah, very personable and a very personal gospel. Actually, he's. He wants to show us the Son of Man and how he lived as we lived. And so there's a lot of detail in here about feelings, about him going off to pray, about him um, uh, presenting himself and making himself vulnerable and showing himself to be 
um, to be human and facing all the tests that we have to face. That's the thing about Luke's gospel. John talks about the word of God becoming flesh. So in a way, it's hard to identify with Jesus in John's gospel. You can learn from him and you can hear what he says and you can know that he's God, but you, it's difficult to identify in John. But in Luke's gospel, you can identify him because of the things that Luke tells us about Jesus. And I think in this uh, particular section, there are some things that he tells us about Jesus that are really important for us to understand. So... Um, if we read from chapter 5:33 down to chapter 6, verse 11, um, if you just, I mean, read it fairly quickly so that we can, and maybe several people read a few verses each. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, can you make friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come and the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke in a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one who puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now it happened that he was uh, passing through some grain field on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the uh, consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone and gave it to his companion. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to, uh, to accuse him. And he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and he came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the, or harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Thank you. That sentence, they were filled with rage and discussed what they might do, um, is kind of a repetition in, in some ways of what we heard at the end when he'd been in Nazareth. And they had really praised him for what he was saying or what they'd seen him do, and then they wanted to throw him off a cliff at the end of it. So what we're being shown by Luke is a lot of um, responses to Jesus, to what he does and to what he says. And I think that probably you could break it down, what we've seen so far, into three main responses. One of them, the first one, I think, is hesitation. There are people who 
were hesitating to make a choice to decide who Jesus is. They were watching his miracles, watching his cast out demons, listening to him speak, but they were hesitant. And I think that's what he means when he says uh, at the end of chapter 5, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And then the next verse says, and no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And I think what Jesus is talking about is that group of Jews, not necessarily the leaders, who had a religion, they had a tradition, they had a way to access God, and that was good enough for them. And they weren't sure about what this new Jesus, what this Jesus was asking them to do. And they were hesitating to follow him or to trust him or believe what he was doing, hesitating to put themselves on his side because he was already stirring up problems. And I've been thinking a lot about this and thinking, you know, what can we take from this? And I think that is indicative of many, many denominations in our day that people are happy with the religion, with the tradition, and they feel safe within it. And so they don't want to take new wine uh, because they're satisfied with the old stuff. They're satisfied with what they grew up with. They're satisfied with the, um, the trappings and all the things that they can do and go along the track that someone has well-worn before them. And they're hesitating. There are a lot of people in churches who aren't believing because they're hesitating to put their trust in Christ. Because it is new wine into a new wineskin. It won't fit into the denominational traditions that we've built up. And so when I think about what is God trying to tell us, I think that's a really important thing. And that is, even within the professing church, Jesus brings something totally new. And it has to be put into a totally new vessel. The Holy Spirit will not inhabit an old creation. The Holy Spirit inhabits a new creation. We look the same, so the wineskin looks the same, but actually it's different. And so our um, natural, normal human hesitation, that's being played out in churches where it's not being taught that this is a totally new thing. So it's being taught, I mean, you could probably name denominations that are at the extreme end of this, but it's being taught that our traditions are good enough. They're good enough. Yes, people still want it. They want it, but what's also happening is they're gradually hearing it. Yes, oh yes. It is a good thing. But Jesus is talking to to religious people. These people know God. And so how can I take that and put it into my world in 2019? This doesn't relate to people in the world because they don't know God. This relates to people within the professing church who are religious, but who are hesitating about making that step into. And we can all identify with it. I mean, it's a big step. It's a big step. So I think that's what he's talking about with this wine. And actually, of course, for the Jews in that time, eventually the old would disappear. In, in AD 70, the temple would be destroyed. They wouldn't be able to practice their traditional religion. And what does that tell me? That tells me that soon, 
maybe sooner than we think, all this traditional religion will disappear. And, and those people who have trusted in it and have been afraid to go the last step and receive Jesus by, by way of his spirit, it will be too late for them. So there are people, I think, in our churches today who have hesitated to take on the fullness of Christ by his spirit. And they are just wrapping themselves in the old wineskin, um, thinking that that's good enough, and it isn't. Second lot of people. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. That, um, uh, he came to fulfill the law to the letter, which he did fulfill. And he doesn't, I believe, actually condemn uh, the rituals that are going on in the temple. But what he does condemn, I think, is the hard-heartedness with which they are performed and the demands which uh, they put on the people. The actual ceremony itself uh, is um, is is fine and good and correct as, as Leviticus. Uh, it is, Mike, but he's going to say that he is the new temple. Yes. That he has, uh, that the, uh, Paul will later describe it as the dividing wall between <coughs> Jew and Gentile, the, which is the law, the statutes, uh, that has been abolished. So, yes, I understand what you're saying, and not that Leviticus is wrong, but God... Uh, manifested himself to the Jews, to, to the, his people, in one particular way, but that was only ever a picture of Christ. All those things in Leviticus are just a picture of Christ. Yes. And so when Christ came, he was expecting people to want the real and to dis discard the shadow. So, but they're hesitating. And so I'm not saying we're hesitating in the same way, but I think people within the professing church, there are many who have not received Christ because they've held on to the tradition of their religion. I was thinking like Jesus did not condemn, uh, but to amplify, as I say, and show the spirit of what was happening, uh, which was incorrect you know, by the Pharisees and Sadducees and people. And so like us, uh, I don't think it's beneficial for us to condemn the, the uh, processes and rituals of the Church of England, let's say, but to, um, as Jesus did, to condone, but to amplify. And yeah, I think the maybe there's. Spirit of yeah, and maybe the words we're using are causing, you know, because maybe I'm not quite understanding what you mean. And um, it's yeah, sorry, Mike. Uh, maybe it's. Yes, religion is man-made. It's man-made. We say it all the time. It's man-made. All the traditions that we have within our churches, most denominations, started with really good intentions. It's not that the people doing them have bad intentions or even that people are not saved who are doing them. It's just that those trappings can hide the reality of Christ. And you can think you're okay. And then you, when you're faced with Jesus you're going to hesitate. Is, isn't what I'm doing good enough? Mm. And that's the problem. I'm not condemning the people who do it. I'm wanting God to break through that and say, there's so much more. That's example, death, actually. Yes. Yes. You, you know, it's, it's, being, it's just so much meaning there. Mm. Mm. Yes. I think that some people just go, 
Yes, so it's not the denomination that I'm attacking. It's not even the rituals themselves or the liturgies or any of it that I'm yeah. saying is wrong. Yeah. But what I am saying is they can somehow camouflage sure. the reality and they can make you feel that that's good enough. Well, that's what's happening in Jesus' day the same, wasn't it? Exactly. That's why I'm taking it from there and bringing it into yeah. 2019. Yeah. So the second group, go ahead. I just think hesitation is such a good word. Hmm. Yes. That's a really good example. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, that's a really good example. Mm. Hmm. Okay, second group, I think, are the people who are criticizing. Um, uh, it's essentially the um, Pharisees and the scribes, but they would have had people following them and agreeing, and, and they are criticizing what Jesus is doing, and they're criticizing him on points of law. So they're not criticizing healing per se, they're criticizing healing on the Sabbath. They're not criticizing that he's casting out demons, they just don't want him to do it in their vicinity. And that really makes me think about the, us, the professing church. We are often so quick to criticize each other. We are so quick to criticize when people do things in a way that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, you know, that we have this kind of idea that if you don't do it the way I do it, you must necessarily be wrong. You know, that's why I think sometimes our language is different, but we're probably saying the same thing. I hope so. Oh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it would be very easy to get into that, that way of criticizing. And unfortunately, the church is full of critical, judgmental people. And I think it's inevitable because... Uh, once we know a little bit, we think we know much more than we know. We actually do. And, um, and so just by nature of who we are, we tend to criticize and judge things we don't quite understand. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They didn't quite yet understand who Jesus was. And they were criticizing him because he was doing stuff that they didn't agree with technically, i.e. They he, they, he was doing it on the Sabbath. And they refused to look at what was the result of what he was doing. This is the thing. So I think we do have a lot of people within the professing church. And I think I am very able to criticize with the rest of them. I am very able to do that. And I honestly think if we all search our own hearts, we, should, we would be able to find that too. That we all have this human tendency to criticize and be judgmental. And what really struck me about this was that the reason these people were criticizing, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, they were criticizing what Jesus was doing because he was breaking a law. Right? He was breaking a law. That was the reason they were giving for it. And the reason underneath all of it was they did not actually believe that they could get to God only by his grace. They felt that the law in itself was something they had to keep doing to get to God. And you can understand why they might think that, because that was the Jewish religion. They had the law. But... When you move it into 2019 and you put it into the church, into a church that the whole Bible says we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, or whatever way around that is, that works are only the result of our salvation rather than the way to salvation, now you can start to see that actually their 
criticism came from a core of unbelief. So critical, judgmental people in the church, at their core, at their base, they have something or all things that they do not believe. They do not believe that God is able to show grace to those people who are doing something that is wrong in their eyes. And that is a huge, huge problem in the church. Now, I'm not talking about sin I'm talking about things that are done in ways that we don't necessarily, we wouldn't do it in that way. And because the Pharisees are going to say to Jesus, how come your disciples are eating grain on the Sabbath? Because they weren't supposed to do that. And actually Jesus says, well, in in our own Old Testament, in our own history, David's men ate grain on the Sabbath. So if this is not unique... This is not a new thing. This, you don't like it because you've set up these rules and regulations and everybody will keep them. And if they keep them, they'll all be safe. And if you don't keep them, you can't be sure that God is going to look favorably on you. And we have that in the church. We have it. And the core of it is we don't really trust grace totally unmitigated, unearned, undeserved favour at the base of us or at the base of those people who criticise and judge other believers. It's because we don't totally um, trust grace. You know, we have that, what was the man who followed Jesus and he, and Jesus want, he wanted him to heal his son and Jesus said, if you'll only have faith. He said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is not, you don't believe in Jesus. This is not that you're not a believer. This is simply that that critical, judgmental, um, I don't want to say spirit, but that part of our human nature is based on the fact that we don't quite trust grace. We don't quite trust the mercy of God. And so it comes out in this criticism and this. So what's the only way to fight that criticism What's the only way to, in yourself, I'm talking about, not other people. I mean, you can go and bop everybody on the head if you like, but you know. But what's the only way? When you see that judgmental attitude, that criticism rising up in you, forgive them, yeah, but what will actually stop that happening? Only if you know God better and put your trust in him more. Critical, judgmental people tend to be people who do, I'm not talking about, for, we are to be discerning and, and we are to make judgments on sin. It's not, we're not talking about sin. We're talking about different ways of doing things within the body of Christ. We have to understand that if we are critical and judgmental about people, it is 99.9% of the time because of something about God we don't believe. Grace is a word, but also an experience. Yes, yes. Um, so, I think that they, they were criticizing about their eating the grain on the Sabbath because, in essence, they did not believe in a God who would save simply by grace. A God who was concerned with the internals of your heart and not the externals of your behavior. We are people, human beings, who base everything on the externals of behavior because, unfortunately, we can't see the heart. Whereas God can see the heart. Thank God that God can see the heart. So you've got some who are hesitating, some who are criticizing. And then the third lot, I think, is the people who hate him. 
they, they hate what he's saying and what he's doing. They're setting a trap. It says they set a trap. They placed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue and they watched to see if Jesus would heal him. And when he did, he did it in front of everyone. I think the scripture actually says that. He made him stand up in front of everyone and he healed him. And when he did that, what did he announce to them? It's right to do this, yeah, to heal on the Sabbath. It doesn't make any difference. Why, though? What does he actually say? For the Son of Man, what does it say he say? Is Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, what's he telling us in that? Yeah, in, in that statement, the Son of Man, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. That is, he is over the Sabbath. He can do with it whatever he wants. Yes, he's God, exactly. And they hate him for it. They hate him for it. And what really struck me was two things, and I'm sure it struck you too. They had no concern for the man himself, of course. They weren't bothered about him. But what Jesus was doing was looking directly into their hearts and seeing the reality of who they are. Look at what it says. I think it's verse, verse 8. But he knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were thinking. And in John's Gospel, I think we talked about that before, John chapter 2, right at the end, after the wedding in Cana, and after he's, uh, he's turned over the tables in the temple, I think. Um, it says right at the end of John chapter 2, many believed in him there, but Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew what was in a man. Yes. God knows the heart. Yes. And he knows whether you're doing things out of rote, whether you're doing things to look good to other people, whether you're um, receiving him and wanting to grow in his, his life and, and, and in, in the knowledge of him, or whether actually you're more, con more concerned with all the trappings of your religious um, life. Um, they were nothing but empty people. That's what he saw. And they knew he saw it. And that's the thing. Why do people hate Jesus? Because they know he sees who they are. Mm. They says, know. He says to them, doesn't he, that, uh, that is, it's better, is it better to save life or to destroy Yes, it? yes. So he's act, their, their, their choice is to, is to kill this person. Exactly. Yeah. So that's their, their choice. Their yeah. And he sees he, that. Yeah. That's the thing. Yes. He knows what's in them. And that's the scary thing about God. And that's why it has to be all about our heart. Because he sees right through all the behavior. He sees through our words. He sees through everything we might like to appear to be. And he looks directly at our heart and puts his finger on the thing that he can see. And they hated him for it. And that's the dividing line. If you knew, if, if you and I, let's say, we know that God sees our heart. And your response to that is, oh, Lord, change what you see. Yes. Change what you see. Your response is not, right, get out of here. I don't want you looking at me anymore. So that's what we're being shown in Luke's gospel, this, const this, this division between people who are hesitating, people who just want to criticize, people who are judgmental because basically it's all unbelief, and those who actually will receive him because they want him to know who they are. It's an amazing way to test your faith. Do you want Jesus to look into your heart? And, and, and do you want to be able to say to him, you know, I don't like what I see, 
please get rid of that in me. Oh, right. I'm not even going there, Mike. I'm not even sure. And I don't understand that. We are not no, speaking right. the same language at all. And I should be criticising you all the way home in my car. No. So, can somebody read now Luke chapter 6, verse 12 to verse 19? Because we're going to move on a little bit. Um, 12 to 19. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him. He chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who was called Zealot, Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And to 19 please, Simon. Just two more oh, verses, yeah, two Simon, more verses. please. Yeah. Who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him. For power was coming from him and healing them all. Thank you. Okay, so what's Luke very um, quick to point out? First verse, what does he say Jesus does? It was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. So, what do you think he's praying about? Yes, to help him choose the, the apostles. He's got lots of disciples at this time, but he's choosing 12 of them. Um, what else might he be praying for or about? Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he does heal. I don't know that he loses power because he's God, so I'm not sure that he could lose power, but I accept that he would be tired and weak and he's need to pay. Is human too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and he knew someone. He knew the power had gone from him, yeah. Do you think he might also have been praying at the responses that he's getting from people who are supposed to be representing God to the people, the scribes and the Pharisees? These are the leaders of the people, the teachers of the law, the scribes. So they are supposed to be representing God, and actually what they're doing is hating him, judging him, criticizing him. So he's, he's probably praying for them to his father, um, he says he spent the whole night in prayer. That's a long time. So, I, and I think he's a human being too. So perhaps there are, you know, Lord, I didn't expect the Father. I didn't expect this response. You know, I mean, of course he did because he's God. But you know, he is a human being, and so the, and he goes through all the emotions that we go through. He went through all the temptations that we go through. So his responses are like ours. Yes, exactly. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's our prayer wall, Simon. Yeah, it's the whole, um, yeah, the whole night in prayer. Think about it. He comes yeah. down from that night in prayer and he chooses 12 people to be the apostles and one of them is Judas. Mm. So think about that too. What might, how might that have been prayed through by him? Imagine, how would you be praying? Would you be coming down off the mountain and choosing someone you knew would betray you? Yes, yes. I think there is a lot of that, actually. And he must have said, I don't want Judas in his humanness. But like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So there's this whole transactional process going on, I think, through his prayer that, are you really sure, Judas? I mean, don't you know what he's going to do? Exactly. But also, what do you think Luke is, is trying to let us know here about Jesus? Yeah, never changing. Yeah, he, he continually talks to, the, to his father. What are we being shown? What would you say is the overriding characteristic of someone who chooses a man to be his close friend, intimate disciple, someone who's going to live with him for three years, who Jesus is going to be vulnerable in front of, knowing that that person is going to betray him? What is I the say ultimately, though, um, he says, doesn't he? Jesus says that he knows what's in man. Mm. And another time he said, Will you go away also? Because the sayings were too hard for them. Mm. But Judas didn't. He stayed right through to the end. He did. And it wasn't he did. until the devil entered into him. No, I don't. I, don't no, so. I don't. I think, that, um, I think that Judas made his own choice. And that's what he was held accountable for. Once you say the devil entered him, although he did, mm. Satan did, um, the scripture says so, but, but he, was choosing, he was choosing to steal from the purse anyway. That's what John tells us. He was choosing. So I think that as soon as we say the devil made me do it, we're exonerating ourselves from responsibility. And, and Judas is never exonerated. Yeah. When they went out in twos to heal... So, he so, went out too. Yeah, exactly. So yes. I mean, why didn't his co-partner <laughs> realize that there's something not quite right here? Because I don't know. Maybe they did. Like Maybe they did. I don't know. But the thing that really strikes me is not so much about Judas, but about Jesus, that he would make himself vulnerable to someone who yes. would ultimately hurt him. Yes. And, well, actually cause his death or mm. bring about his death. Will you do that? Mm. You know, we say we want to be like Jesus. That's what being like Jesus is. It's making yourself vulnerable. It's sharing life with someone who you know will ultimately walk away from you or cause you harm. Would you be willing to do that? Yes. Yes. Definitely. But think of the pain of that oh, and the grief of it and the and just the openness. To, to do that. And I think about us, you know, us as believers, Christians. I've been a Christian however many years, you know. I don't want people around me who don't like me. You know, I, I, in my humanness, I don't. Uh, you know, we want to be liked and we want to be with people who like us and people who won't deliberately hurt us. But Jesus chose the opposite. So what is it that we're, we're being shown here? 
he loved Judas. Yes, he loved Judas. Yes, he loved him to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But what are we being shown? If you had to put a name to it, what are we being shown? This is what grace is. This is what unconditional love looks like. You know, this is what it actually, that, this is it with legs. This is how it acts and how it moves. And this is what it's all about. So when we're considering, you know, I'm always praying for special grace because of all the difficult people in my life, uh, you know, not really, but you know what I mean. You know, I pray for special grace. And then I look at this. And I think, my goodness, you know, what have I got to face? Nothing compared to this. And I struggle even to show the minutest amount of grace and love. And yet Jesus is saying, and, and there are, there's me saying, I want to be like Jesus. And then seeing this and realizing how far I still have to go. Exactly, exactly. So... I think this is what we're being shown. I think that's what Luke is going out of his way to show us, this unconditional love, this grace of God, the powerful grace of God that was present in Jesus, not just in the healing, not just in the casting out demons, but in his ability to walk with Judas right up to his death. Um, it is amazing. To me, that's amazing. Um, so he chooses these, these 12. They're all ordinary people. We, we get Paul amplifying for that for us in 1 Corinthians, that God chose the foolish to shame the wise. And, uh, and again, but Luke, I think, is showing us that you know, these men, Jesus would build his church on these ordinary people. And that gives me great hope because he's building his church through ordinary people now. That's how he's doing it. And it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from. It makes no difference. He is the power in us and through us that will build his church. Um, why 12 apostles? 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, explain that to me because he's making a church. Not, not, not Israel. He's already got Israel. So why does it have to be to do with the 12 tribes of Israel? Because, you know, we have a big replacement theology in the church in this, in, in this country. And we, all of us would say, probably, we know that it's not right. But we need to be able to explain why it's not right. So he chooses 12 apostles to be, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that because that's confirmed in Acts. Acts, when they choose someone to replace Judas. So why, why 12, you know, what's, what is Jesus actually doing Yes, he's, he's fulfilling the Old Testament too, but he's inaugurating a new nation. Peter will call us a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that holy nation, the new nation in the beginning, was all Jewish. It was all Jewish. And the apostles that he chose to be the foundation of the church, Paul will write, doesn't he, that the, uh, Peter, that it's built on the foundation of the apostles... And the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, the church, this new humanity, this new nation that he was building was built on the Jewish, uh, those Jewish apostles. So had God finished with the Jews? 
No, the church was all Jewish here. Mm. There is no church yet because he needs to die and, and the Holy Spirit be, be um, sent. But, you know, without that technicality, he is using um, the Jews to start the church. What, um, who did the gospel come to first? Jews. Jews. Yeah. So tell me, um, if you had to describe, and I want to do it briefly, five minutes, and you're, you all know Israel, so you can do it very nicely for me. Um, we belong to the church, and in the church there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So has God finished with Israel? Now. Why not? Yeah, no, don't tell me about that. Just start to answer me this question. I, it's good. I'm not. Just don't tell me about it now, Mike. Tell me later. Um, but why? Why is replacement theology wrong? He's got covenant with Israel. That's correct. But his unbreakable covenant with with Israel. Not every Jew born a Jew is a Jew. Not every Israelite born into Israel was what we would call part of the covenant. Paul was very clear in Romans chapter uh, Romans two. He says, "Not every it's not not every Jew is a Jew. Not everyone who's circumcised is part of the covenant. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, who has circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh." So there were people born to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are not part of the covenant of God that he made with Abraham. So what is the truth about that covenant? How can you find out who's in and who's not? The heart. It's all about the heart. So when we're trying to think about God and who he is and how he works, and we're saying rightly that he made a covenant with Israel, not everyone who calls themselves an Israelite is a part of that covenant because you have to be part of that covenant from your heart, mm. not from the flesh. It's the same, isn't it? It's the same now in the Christian church. You have to be a, a Christian from the heart. It's a heart condition. It's not the tradition. It's not the religion. It's not all the things you go through or what you say. It is your heart for God. And that's the, that's the thing. So has the church replaced Israel? No. God is very clear and he says that I, he says uh, through Paul and he said it to Elijah, I have kept, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Yes. He says that at a time of great wickedness in Israel. And what that means is the rest of them are not kept for God. It's that 7,000 who are part of the covenant of God. 7,000 Israelites who are part of the covenant. Do you see what I mean? And that's really important because if we start now to look at the nation of Israel and say God has is every one of those is part of that covenant, that is not true. Oh, it does explain that when it says all Israel will be saved. Exactly. It's yes, that's it. You know, it's who is an Israelite? An Israelite is someone who is circumcised from the heart and you recognize them down through time. So in, let's say, Elijah's day, the clearest re recognition was they did not bow their knee to idols of any kind. They stayed with God. They worshipped God alone. How do you recognize 
the, and they were called the remnant, that's what he calls them, the remnant. How do you recognise the remnant in our time, from 2,000 years ago till now? Mm. How is the remnant recognised? They love the word. That's a good one. They love, no, just very basically, how is the remnant recognised? They have put their trust in Messiah. It is the believing Jews who are the remnant in our time. So when the church gets zoomed up, Scotty, when we're beamed up to be with the Lord in the rapture and the tribulation starts, or wherever you believe about that, when, when they're in the tribulation, who will the remnant be? Who will the true Israelites be? No, they'll have gone up with the church because they're part of the Jews. So once the church has gone, who will be the remnant of God then? They'll be circumcised of the heart they'll be the ones that jesus when jesus says when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place get out of jerusalem get out of judea they will be amongst those people who run for their lives and who are protected in the wilderness by god they will be people who zechariah says they will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn over me as of an only son they will be those who trust messiah who trust, exactly. So the remnant of Israel has been continuous from Abraham down until the second coming of Christ, but they are identified as people who love God from their heart. And there is no other way to get to heaven, to salvation, to God, except to love him from your heart. No excuses, no differences. He is the same God, and he goes the same way, whether you be Jew or or Gentile. Go it's ahead. illustrated in the Old Testament by the fact that the, the genuine believers, the, the genuine people brought a perfect lamb or a perfect first of the flock and obeyed the Lord to yes. the letter yes. with their heart. With their heart, exactly. Rather than others who brought, oh, well, that one's got a broken leg, we'll put that one in. Yes, exactly, all those the those way through. And it didn't size. even matter if you couldn't bring the perfect no. lamb. That's no. what we're... Even if you didn't have the perfect lamb, it didn't matter. You bring two turtle doves, or you bring this, or you bring that, because God knows your heart. And so that's the thing. We have to be sure, because if we're just preaching that every single Jew who's ever been a, born a Jew is saved because they are part of a chosen race, that is not true. Hmm? Yes. And God is an unchanging God. And he will not change the way he deals with men. He wants you to love him, to love him first, and to love him most. And as soon as you do that, you are part of this covenant of God. You are part. I mean, the, the reason that Israel is so blessed is that they had the covenant. They knew God. They saw him. They saw him at work. They had a temple to worship him in. They knew his laws. They knew who he was. They, they had received his grace and his mercy. So they were given so much more than the Gentiles were given. That's, why they were, that's how they were chosen. They were given blessing on blessing on blessing. Paul's very clear in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So, but we have, to be, we have to know why we believe this. It's not enough to just say, well, you know, the church hasn't replaced Israel. We have to know why not. Can I just add to that and say that what I was going to say earlier is that with the grafting, but going on from that, it says that we cannot go in until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, and then the one new man, Jew and Gentile together, will go into heaven. So we need them. We can't go without them. Correct. Thank you. 
We can't, we can't be raptured without them. No, but a lot of stuff will happen after the rapture. Mm. And it's still possible to be saved after the rapture. But you won't be part of the church. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to come back to that. There's no difference between Jew, Gentile, Greek. Slave or free, male or female. And that's all related to the, I see the heart. Yes. It's all about the heart. And, we, and by heart, I mean will. Do you love God from your will? Not, not your feelings. Exactly. It's all about that. And, and it's so important. I, you know, I know I've gone, on, gone off on one. It's taken ten minutes, not five. But, um, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's... Yeah, it's it's massively important, and it answers so many questions. Yeah, it answers so many questions. Um, God is calling each one of us, Jew or Gentile, to love Him. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the first commandment. But it's a delight. It is for those who do. Yes, yes. So, um, so Jesus is starting this new holy nation. He's starting this church. He's starting this body of Christ. He's inaugurating this one new man, this new humanity. And, um, uh, and there will be Jews who don't partake in that. And so they will not be part of the remnant at that time. They won't be. They reject Christ. They reject God, actually. And so... Um, God is a gracious God. He sees the heart. He sees those who weren't able to understand and those who deliberately did not want. And he will work the way God works and that will be gracious and merciful and full of loving kindness and compassion. But we have to be sure that we understand exactly what, who Israel is and what the church is and what's going to be happening when the church is gone. So... Um, it is interesting, yeah. It's okay, it's okay that we don't fully understand it. It's okay that it is a mystery. It is a mystery. It is a mystery, Jew and Gentile in one body. There, is, there are different groups. When we get to heaven, there will be people who are not the church. I mean, go figure. There will be all the Old Testament saints who loved God from their heart. And some of those will be Gentiles. And then there will be people who go through the tribulation. And who come to know Jesus through the tribulation. And they'll be there too. And then there'll be the church, the bride of Christ. Have Wonderful. Like Cyrus? Cyrus, I think so. I actually think Nebuchadnezzar might even be there. <laughs> because he made an astonishing statement, actually. Um, so I think there'll be all sorts of people. And I just think that we, we do a disservice to God if we make it so rigid. It's, it's you know, so... Um, Yes, yeah. But we know the way at the moment, and that is through Jesus alone. Yes. So that is, that's the way at the moment, and has always been, actually, but it's just written in different ways. So, Okay, so let's move on a little bit. Um, what we're, what uh, Luke has shown us is this demonstration of power of Jesus, his compassion, his um, example to the new apostles. This is what you're going to be doing when I'm gone. You know, they don't know it yet, but that's what he's expecting for them to do. Love as I love, show compassion as I show compassion. You're going to have the power to do what I'm doing. Um, 
And their job would be to share with a very needy world, start this new thing, and um, uh, and he would build his church upon them. And, and there were people around them who would still be hesitating. There would be people who were judging them and criticizing them. We see that all through the New Testament. And there will be people who put their trust in Jesus because of the witness of those apostles. Um, yeah, no wonder he prayed all night. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So let's go on a little bit. Um, could we read from, um, well, we read from verse 20 uh, down to, um, well, all the way down to verse 40. Can we go down there really fast, though? So read fast. And turning his gaze toward his, apostles, his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who, are hunger, who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So I'll stop there just for a minute. Um, I think I asked a question in the homework if anyone looked at it. Is this the same as the Sermon on the Mount? I didn't think so. Um, why didn't you think so? Yeah, I know. He's on level ground. But actually, it's quite interesting because I looked that up to see. And the word that's written on level ground, it's a plain, and it actually means a mountainous plateau. Yeah, sorry. So that's... Exactly. So now you do think. And that's what, exactly what I did. It's exactly what I did. I thought, no, this can't be the Sermon on the Mount. But then I looked it up and saw, I think it is. It um, doesn't really matter whether it is or it isn't. It's just interesting, I think, to see. But Luke's recording this um, for us. And, and I've broken it up because I've only read now down to whatever verse it was. Um, and uh, what do you see Jesus is trying to do here? There you go. He's reversing man's opinion. Now, it's really important, actually, here, because he's not only reversing human opinion, he's reversing the re what was revealed in the Old Testament about blessing. In the Old Testament, blessing was normally material blessing. It was physical blessing. You were blessed if you had children. You were blessed if you had money. You were blessed. God would bless you with those things. He would bless you with land. He would send the rains in season. He would do all of those things. You would have sh flocks and cattle and all of this. That was blessing. But now Jesus, God, comes on the scene and he turns that completely upside down. Completely upside down. And that's really interesting to me. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Yeah, it's, no, it's interesting though, isn't it? And, and what he's going to say as he goes through this, and uh, as you get to the end, which we haven't read yet, but he's going to uh, describe righteousness to them. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's all spiritual, what he's saying. And he says, uh, if, your, if, if your treasure is in heaven, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. He is, but he's turning upside down what they've yeah. already thought because they thought that blessing from God, and they were told, I will bless you if you do these things. So they're expecting blessing materially and physically. So when he talks about the kingdom of God, you and I, because we live in 2019, we can very easily say, well, it was all spiritual. But for those Jews who heard it, no, it was not. It wasn't. So what was he trying to tell them about the kingdom of God? Because look at what he says. He said, um, uh, where are we? No. Yes, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. When they heard kingdom of God, what would they have thought of? An earthly kingdom. They expected Messiah to come and set up an earthly kingdom, didn't they? That's what they were waiting for. That's why a lot of people wouldn't put their trust in him, because he wasn't setting up an earthly kingdom. When will the earthly kingdom of, of Jesus be? When will the kingdom of God be on earth? When he returns. When he returns. So when we pray, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, that's what we're praying for. In one sense, we're praying for the physical return of Christ. But also, what does the word kingdom mean? What is a kingdom? Exactly. A kingdom is an area that is ruled by a king. So where is the kingdom of God now? In your heart. Why? Because that's where he rules. The king rules in your heart, in your will. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Floored them, definitely. Yeah, it would. So the kingdom of God that is in our hearts is the rule of Jesus as the, God, as, as the king over us. So when we're saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're actually saying is help me to do your will on earth because your kingdom has already come in me and I'm already under your authority, your rule and reign. But these disciples couldn't understand that. How could they? We struggle with it. So they could not understand it. So he has to show them, I am not, I am the Messiah, but I'm not doing in your timing what you think is going to happen. It is going to come, but it's not yet. Mm. And once you get that understanding, that opens up the whole of the Christian life. Okay, what, how do we live? What is our trust in? What is our hope in? What is our everything? What do we think? About this life. Transient. Yes. 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 What did Brenda say? I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. What we actually mean is the best is yet to come. This is not the best. This is a place of blessing because I know the best. He's the king. But this is not the best yet. The best will be when I am there face to face with Christ, when I am there, actually there physically with him, when he comes back and I come back with him, if you like, whatever. But you see, for the Jews, when the kingdom of God arrived, it made them, it would make them, God had said, you'll be the chief of nations and not the tail of nations. You know, you will be what, you, what I promised you, but that won't come until he comes back the second time. That will not come until the tribulation has come first. 
So all of us, Jew, Gentile, those of us who have given our hearts to the Lord, who are now under his kingly authority, we live in the blessing but not fullness yet. We live in the, the best is yet to come. And that's what he's trying to show them. This is how you live when you believe that the best is yet to come. This is how you live if Jesus is really the king in your life. You're blessed if you're poor because you know the best is yet to come. You're going to have the kingdom of God. You're blessed if you're hungry because you know you'll be filled and satisfied one day. You're blessed if people hate you because you know that the God of all the earth has died for you and loved you and that you will spend your your eternity in paradise with him. That's what he's trying to tell them. And then he's going to get through that and say, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you who um, do those when people, men speak well of you. Why? Because you're getting the best, your best now. Those who trust in the Lord, the best is yet to come. No matter how good this life is, whether I'm rich or poor, hungry or thirsty, whatever this life is, it's still not the best. But if you, put your, if you don't put your trust in Jesus, if you're not part of his kingly realm, this is the best it's ever going to be. Well, look at your life. Do you want this to be eternal? Do you really want a life no better than the life you've had or the life you have now? Even if it's quite good? No. And you know that when you're persecuted. You know that when you're hungry. You know that when you're poor. The reason we have been lulled off to sleep with this satanic lullaby is as I said a couple of weeks ago, is that we have been living in the land of plenty for so long that we've mistaken mm. that for the best. Yes, that's why there's revival over there yeah. and not revival here. No. Yes, exactly. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to turn it all upside down and try to get them to see. Because these disciples, these apostles are going to go through very, very difficult times. They're going to be like the Iranian believers. They're going to be like the believers in Israel even, the believers who were persecuted for their faith by their own families. They're going to be exactly like that. And it's going to take a real true trust that my God is able to do all that he's promised and that he will bring me into that best. Not that there's no blessing now. Of course there's blessing now, because the knowledge of that is blessing now. And that he does give you the strength to get through difficult times, and he does give you peace and joy and all of that. And all of us can testify to that in some degree. So it's not that there's no blessing now, it's that the best is yet to come. Go ahead, Mike. A yes, exactly. No. Yes. 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 It is. It is. It is. So he goes through this. He does three blessings, three woes. Um, gets them through. He turns upside down all their estimations of everything. That's what Jesus always does. He turns everything upside down. God turns everything upside down. And 
you know, at first it's like okay, and then suddenly he turns bigger things upside down, and it, requiring more and more trust, more and more surrender, more and more um, giving it over to him. And so what he will do now is go on from verse 31, uh, verse, sorry, verse um, 27, down, let's, let's say, can someone read from 27 to 40, please? Bless those who curse you and praise for, pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do, do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive <coughs> as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and run over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not about his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Well, how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that's fine, Eve. Thank you. Thank you. I think, yeah, I know. We won't get to the end, so I'll, we'll, we'll go from, um, we'll just go to verse 40. So uh, Jesus has just talked about blessing and woes, so he's turned that all upside down. What do you think he's gone into now? What is he describing from verse 27, let's say down to, um, I don't know, let's say down to verse 40? What's he describing? <laughs> yes, he's, he's describing sort of the opposite of the law. But I think what, what, he's, what he's saying is this is the way a person lives who lives under the rule and reign of Jesus or of God. This is what true righteousness looks like. This is what it looks like. And it's, it's not keeping the law. It's not doing all of these things. It's actually uh, doing things that are impossible naturally for us to do. That's what true righteousness looks like. And he will go on at the end of this chapter to say, and this is what true righteousness leads to. It leads to true obedience. 
They see, this is the thing, this is the problem. This is why a lot of these Pharisees and scribes wouldn't readily accept Christ. This is why religions, denominations come up with this idea that it's not just grace, there has to be works, that you have to do, it's not just faith, it's got to be works as well. Because if you don't do these things, you're not going to, and they're afraid to say you have perfect liberty in Christ. They are afraid to say you're, you're set free. You're set free. And the reason they're afraid is because they don't actually understand that, that true faith brings about a desire to live for God. And that's what he's saying. You're blessed if you do these things. Woe to you if it's like that. Because being that blessed person will lead you to live a life you cannot live on your own. Look at what he says. Love your enemies. I mean, who does that? No one loves their enemies. Humanly speaking, we can't. Instinctively, we, we defend ourselves and, or we attack. Instinctively, that's a human condition. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I mean, who does that? Do good to that. Yes, it is so challenging. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's a debatable verse, actually. So we won't go there. <laughs> You've got so many tangents, no. Mike, honestly. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's fine, but there's a lot, you know, there's... I know. Can you go back to the text then, and it says that, that the measure that we have is shaken down. Yes, and, yes. Uh, you know, when I was a boy, I used to go to, on the beach at Kessingland and get shrimps, and they used to cook them, and the chap used to take a pun and put it in, yeah. and then shake it down, yeah. and put some more in, and shake yeah. it, so you got a full, full pun of, of yeah. It is. It is. It is. Or the opposite. It, you'll get a full yes. measure of what you give. Because yes, he's right. talking about true righteousness. So love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do not retaliate. Give freely. Treat others the way you want to be treated. There you have his relationship with Judas. That was his relationship with Judas. That's what he's showing us. This is what true righteousness looks like. This is what unconditional love looks like. This is what grace looks like. It looks like this. Yes, mm. yes, don't retaliate, don't defend yourself, don't do those things. Trust that God will do those things for you. So what happens when you live that way? If you live this life of true righteousness, what will happen? It's true freedom. It's freedom. It'll upset the world. It'll upset the world. It's deep love. Yes. Yes. Move it out one step from ourselves. What will happen if you live like this? People will think, what on earth is that person doing? What is that person? Ha exactly. How can that person live that way? Reese Howell. Yes. Mm. How, can, how can they live that way? Can you imagine when collectively we do this? Can you imagine what the world would say if we truly collectively lived this way? And I'm not talking about blind uh, no, I'm not talking about no judgment at all because he's going to talk about removing specks from people's eyes. Just make sure the plank's out of your own first. So it's not that we're to go around, you know, like the three monkeys, you know, see no evil, hear no... Not, it's not that. We're supposed to be uh, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's what this is. That's what this true righteousness is. When we live that way, people will want to know this God. 
because they will not be able to understand how we can do that. People like us, how could you possibly live that way? Yes, I think that's unfortunately the professing church. I think that's, uh, yeah, but I mean, Jesus said, leave them all there, didn't he? The tears and the, just leave them to grow up by the wheat. So I think actually, I think actually, although this goes on and it must grieve um, God, because it, well, it says in Genesis that God was grieved he'd made man. I'm sure he must be grieved now. But one thing I think that we probably don't talk about enough is how wonderfully joyous he must be when he sees his people doing, living the way he wants us to live. And how amazing that must be in heaven when angels are rejoicing, when, when he is talking to Jesus about his, his bride, and when, when he's just saying, I mean, like he did with Job, look at my servant Job. Look at my servant Job. Whatever you do to him, he will hang on to his faith. And when we do that, that pleases the heart of God. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that sometimes because we are a work in progress. And yes, we do get things terribly wrong, but God is pleased when people love him from their heart. He's pleased with that. That's why he says in Zephaniah, I rejoice over you with singing. I rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Not because they got everything right, they didn't, but because they loved him from their heart. I don't think we shall have got everything right. No. 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 We can't get everything right. I mean, we're just human beings. That's why, that's why we need each other. But thank you, Anna. I'm not as other men. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm done. No, I'm not quite done because I want to finish. I'm not going to finish the chapter, but I want to finish with this because he, he talks about here um, the kind of if, if you do good to others, what credit is that to you if you lend? He's talking about um, and leading into a universal fact that what you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap. That's true for Christians and non-Christians alike. What you sow, you will reap. How will non-believers reap what they sow? Yeah, how? When will they reap what they sow? In the judgment. Yeah, in the judgment. When they face God, either either if they die before the, the wrath of God is poured out, or, well, in fact, it's being poured out on people, but they, and they don't know it, but they will face the judgment of God, and they will be paid back, mm. pressed down and measured, in a good way or a bad way. Mm. There are consequences for the way we live. If you love much... In, in terms of God, you know, you will receive much love. It's a universal, it's a human thing. You reap what you sow. Yeah, they appear to prosper. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes. And it has gone on in the past, and then you just said that pressed down, and how's it going to manage? How's it going to cope in hell? I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. And I'm so glad that I won't have to find out. Yeah. I'm so grateful for that. Hmm? Lazarus. Yeah. 
Yeah. He wants to go down and, and give the rich man water, but he, yeah. he can't because there's a chasm too wide. Revelation says that outside of the dogs and the sorcerers, and the, they can't come into the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I have no idea, basically, what it will be like. I just know I'll be on the right side of the fence, and that is really a relief to me. And I think it's okay to be relieved about it because... Um, but I also think it's important that we know that yeah. what you reap, you yeah. will sow. Yeah. What you sow, you will reap. Because we are left here for the purpose of telling people yeah. that. Yeah. That, you know, that there is this, this judgment coming. Yeah. And we're to love them the way that Jesus loved Judas. And imagine Judas. Jesus gave him every opportunity yeah. not to do what he eventually did. He... You could say he kept him so close. Judas, I want you to know who I am. I want you to see who I am because I don't want you to do what you are doing and what you are going to do. Imagine that. Yes. 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 I know. But there's always human choice. There's human choice. God wants everyone to be saved, but they won't all be saved because they have to choose him. We have to choose. I think there's too much teaching about God choosing us and not enough about us choosing him. You know, we, we have to understand, we have choice every step of the way. We have choice to believe, we have choice to live for God, we have choice to please God, to love, all of those things. What's the point in the New Testament if we don't have any choice? If it's all God doing it? We have choice. And our choice today is, will I live like this? Will I live like this? Yeah. If you want to be an ambassador, you will. Mm. Well, mm. will the king. Yeah. Well, if it were as simple as that, I want to be all those things. But my individual everyday choices somehow would not let you know that. Mm. Always. Exactly. Always. So it's this recognition that I am this work in progress, that God has shown me, Jesus has shown me what this life is supposed to look like, and my heart is, Lord, please get me there. What must I be going along with to get me there? So we're going to finish now because we can't get to the end of my notes. So um, that's okay because there's always endless notes. I hope I see you on Saturday, some people. If I don't, I'll see you next Tuesday. Praise God, really. Praise God for this fellowship. Praise God that we can be together. And it's just wonderful. I'm so grateful for it. And um, yeah. I do have two cards here if anybody spot me last Thank you. Okay. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for these people individually and collectively. Thank you that you've put me into a family, Lord. It is an amazing privilege. And um, I praise you for it, Father, and ask you to help me live in family because it doesn't come naturally, Lord. It doesn't come naturally to love and to show compassion and grace and mercy. And I know there's still so much in me that... Um, would lead me the other way. So thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you that I'm not where I was, that, that you are at work in me. Thank you that you are doing the same thing in each one of us who has committed themselves to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are leading us on into a closer walk with you. Help us, Father, to understand all that that means and to really cherish it, to guard it, actually, that's what Paul says, Lord, isn't it? Or what you said through Paul, guard what has been entrusted to you. Mm. And so, Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to guard what you have entrusted to us, that we might share that with a, a desperate world. 
So I thank you, Father, for all of it. I thank you for Luke's gospel. I thank you for everything that we're learning through it. And I ask you, Father, to help us to apply this to our individual lives and also to our corporate life, Lord, as a, as a family, to um, share with one another, to lift each other up, to pray when we can't individually pray for ourselves, to be the body of Christ together. Help us to do that, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.